like, I mean, I don't have any money. I'm broke. Like we're bootstrapping, right? Like we're, we're paying everything either by ourselves, like the, the holding company that we have that is like completely paid out of pocket. And then we're only growing as like partnerships, like some stuff we do via partnerships with like a profit share, right? Like where we say like, okay, let's invest some sweat equity into this together and we're building something and we're growing it together. And that's also kind of the same deal that Paralyte has with us, right? So Igor was like, yeah, that, that's no problem. Let's just do it like this. And then we were like, I talked to Vladimir and then Vladimir was like, yeah, let's do it. And so uh, we have a deal where it's like not cash based. So it's, it's like profit share based and, and basically also uh, exit share. So if you if we sell something, then you get a kickback through that a certain percentage. And so that is what we what we came up with. But because we have like multiple projects, right? I wouldn't call myself like a nano founder, but I think I'm part of that bigger like community, right? Where it's like, I'm not, because all the founders, they are really focused on like one specific project and they're like kind of pushing that forward, right? And we're more trying to build some sort of like, you know, PE or like vehicle to hold multiple companies and then either hold them or flip them depending on what we want to do and what seems logical. And that's the reason why we're not, Rate, like if traditional PE will raise a fund, right? And will raise a certain amount of dollars and they'll invest them into several things or one thing or whatever, right? But that is like external money or external capital. And we're not doing that. We're trying to basically start with a very small bet, like the this, this Swift Brief, like that one project that we have is a very small bet. And um, that we want to grow and we want to sell. And then what comes back out of that, that becomes the fund. Hi everybody, welcome back to Ship It and Sip It. Today, I have a very interesting founder named Stefan here in the studio. He is the Calm founder or one of the Calm founders on Twitter and in the world. And he's the founder of Swift Brief, uh, Tube Transcripts, Calm Business OS, and more companies that we're going to talk about today. And Stefan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, John. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Awesome. Well, uh, we've been sort of partnering together on a couple of different products, Swift Brief included. So we'll get into those in a little bit. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, for people who are really interested, they can go check out Eager's first interview with you. You got into a lot of detail about uh, your experience as a CTO in different startups and how you got to where you are now. But I'm curious about your experience in a startup studio environment. Uh, what do you think worked well for you there and what didn't work well for you there? From a perspective of that startup studio specifically, which was venture founded, and that I think is quite common, right? That there's some sort of venture fund behind it. Um, we we did work on interesting projects uh, and we had some interesting founders coming in, right? They usually do like this two pronged approach where it's like internal uh, research will lead to projects that are spun out as companies. Like that's one approach, but then it's also like external founders that need product help. Uh, this was very design focused, but also product uh, focused studio. Um, they will come in and then we will build something together with them. And I think um, overall, the process works really well. Um, and to combine these forces works really well. I think um, the internal product development sometimes could take quite a while. And one thing I've seen, you know, with the with the things being spun out, um, it will be hard to find a founder. Um, after the fact, right? Like if a founder comes in and they have an idea and they're like, okay, I'm really committed to get this done with the internal things. It's a bit more like 
you know, ROI focused rather than like a real founder that's really passionate about something where it's like, okay, let's look at trends and like, where are things going? And like, where can we grab some market share? And like, you know, like, I think that's maybe not necessarily the best approach to, to starting something because then you're after the fact looking for someone that is like, I'm super passionate about this thing that you built and I want to take it over, you know? So it's more like, um, yeah, like there, there's this, uh, like a mercenary, right? I'm looking for the word, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a mercenary kind of scenario where it's like, okay, some external person comes in and they do it for, you know, the, the big return or whatever is in it. And most other founders, they're really driven by some sort of mission and like some internal drive that they want to, you know, solve a specific problem. And I think that, um, that was one thing that was like, you know, quite tough to find like a good founder after the fact. And then also. I think, for example, with one of the spin-offs, spin because it's venture-focused, and that's also a reason why we're not venture-focused now, like not want to have funding from the beginning, is like it was quite tough to raise a follow-up round with a company that has had VC from the beginning, right? Like usually you need some sort of traction to get like your seed or whatever you're, you want to raise, like your first round, but that's basically in the studio how it works is that you start with an initial investment almost, right? Because it is just like the nature of it that is like a VC spinning out these things. And then you want, they get like a pretty high share in the product, right? Because they have a lot of risk because they built the initial core, but that makes it somewhat unattractive for then external investors to invest into the same vehicle, right? And so one of the spinoffs that is still around now, but they had to pivot a lot from their original vision. It was because it was, not a super attractive investment um, for external uh, people because of the high stake of the early founding VC or investors, right? And so that was that. And then also some some reason, and that's a bigger thing with like VC, right? I think when they were trying to raise money, they were focusing on a market that from like a VC perspective was too small. And even though they were doing like really well in terms of like numbers, let's say for, for a bootstrap company, they're like, you know, up there with like, I don't know, like Tweet Hunter or something like that, you know, a bit, bit lower than that. So like from a bootstrapper perspective, it's like really amazing business, but because they have VC from the beginning, they can't just be like a small fish, right? They have to aim for something huge. And so they had to pivot to something else and basically kind of scrap that revenue that they'd build up like monthly recurring revenue completely, right? So to go after something else and then aim for the stars kind of thing, right? Which is what you, what people expect if you're in that area, right? So that, but that's something, you know, that I, I don't, I don't ever want to have this pressure to do something that I don't want to do just to please some external stakeholder, right? That, because otherwise I can't continue my operations. Like, and that's the whole reason why I want to bootstrap. If that okay. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I guess let's dive into that difference now and how you approach things now as a calm funder. You outlined it in, in pretty deep detail on your interview with Eager, but I'll just share uh, from your site, the Calm Company OS. Here are the main tenets of, of a Calm Company as you put them. So profitability over funding, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I guess my question here, you don't have to go through all of them again, but my question here for you is um, which of these tenants were sort of the hardest, the ones that you had to grapple with the most when you made this transition and which sort of came naturally to you? 
Mm, I think the hardest, not necessarily from a transition standpoint, but that biggest change is definitely money, right? Like if you're, it's, it's easy to just go like and say, okay, I don't have money. Uh, so I need to be more resourceful or whatever. Like that's not hard because that's how you start, right? It's hard to raise money, but it's very hard to make do with these limited resources because that means, so it wasn't hard from like getting started with it, but it's hard to like keep that going because that means we need to look for some, as long as the product revenue isn't high enough to carry everyone, it means we need to be super scrappy we may, maybe need to take on like freelance gigs from time to time to get some runway to keep going right so it, it it has some disadvantages that you don't have if you have funding and you can just focus on the product because it's expected to take some time until you will make meaningful returns uh to you know then pay the founder salary or whatever right but you know we all, all gotta live and i i don't live in um Indonesia where life isn't that expensive. So it's not a, it's not a little amount of money I need every month. So I think that, um, that is not, you know, what I'm saying is like, it's not a hard concept to grasp, but it's definitely hard to deal with in a day to day. Right. And it's very idealistic to just say like, Oh, I'll just bootstrap, you know, like whatever, it's really easy. <laughs> so I think that, um, otherwise I think, you know, honestly, documentation, I think that's something I don't like necessarily you know i know it's important i <laughs> i do it but only because i think it's helpful but it's more of a long-term investment right like if you work in a smaller team then documenting something is not something you really need until you hit the moment where you need it and then it's too late you know that's usually how it goes right so <laughs> i'm trying to work you know work up front and do it but that's for example something in a, in a faster paced environment like a startup uh, like a VC startup where you have to, you know, show certain growth amounts every month or every quarter or whatever. I think that's something that's not priority at all, right? It's more like making it up as we go kind of thing. And move, like speed is preferred over, you know, sitting down and writing something down because it's like, yeah, but that slows you down. Like it's all about, it's more short-term thinking, right? Versus long-term thinking where it's like documentation is really only helpful in the long run and it will help a lot. But in the short term, it will actually slow you down. So it's kind of taking that short term hit for, you know, the long term rewards <clears throat> that it will get us. Right. And we, we've talked about our partnership with like Parallax, right? I, I, I have SOPs and I have things and I immediately can onboard people to, let's say, developers and have them do the right pull request review you know, process or how, what do we need to see in a pull request, like a screenshot or like a loom, like a, like a walkthrough or something. Right. And I have that all written down. So it's very, very helpful because if I wouldn't do that, then I have to sit down with every person and then I have two hours, I explain everything, you know, and it doesn't make sense for me. So I think it's, um, it's definitely has paid off, but it's not something that comes natural to me. <laughs> I'd okay. rather not. But <laughs> yeah. It's helpful. I I do have a follow-up question there on documentation. Given that you come from a technical background, uh, I would assume that it's easier for you to create that documentation so that you can work with us more easily, uh, the SOPs for the, for the pull requests and things like that. Um, if you were in the shoes of, say, a non-technical founder, would you have any advice for them? What, what should they do if they're not familiar with writing that sort of stuff? I think really like 
you know, really only, or not only, but I think it's not only helpful with development, right? Like I think it's, it's everything, customer support, operations, right? And I think you should start with something very easy, which will be the processes within your area of expertise, because there will be something you're familiar with, right? Either marketing, sales, product development, I don't know, but you said non-technical, so it's not development, and then start there. And either what I, what the ideal scenario is, is that you learn a lot of these things yourself, at least on like a surface level so that you understand them. And then you set the processes and then you try to delegate them to someone else, because then you can make sure that, um, they are done well, right? That's the whole kind of, I talked to uh, Igor about this as well, you know, like the E-Myth, it's like a book. And that guy talks a lot about franchises and like basically setting the standard yourself and then delegating it to someone else because then you're being, um, you're not saying like, okay, you take the wheel and do whatever you want. And I trust you that you do the, do the right thing, right? Like it's more delegation through, yeah, like actual delegation rather than like, trusting someone to do, to do their job, right. Which, you know, can work depending on the other person, but I think it's always great to have some sort of control, uh, over the whole process. But I, I understand that it's not always feasible, you know, because take like learning development takes a long time, but I think, you know, with, with no code or all these other things, I think getting some technical understanding about the grand scheme of things that is always really helpful, no matter if you want to do it yourself or if you want to you know, get someone involved to do it for you just because you can then like check, you know, things are going in the right direction. Um, but yeah, so to get back to your question, you know, I like to ramble a lot. You should start, you know, somewhere where, what you're, that you're familiar with and you should start very small, right? So you should maybe just make a checklist, you know, and then maybe try delegating that to a VA or something and get a, a feeling for how it works. And then slowly over time, take up more and more of these areas, right? Or, I mean, you can get a co-founder that you fully trust and then they will do that for you in a certain other area, right? I think it's, it depends on if you, as a non-technical founder, that could be solopreneur or that could be like a team of people, right? I, it depends on the scenario or get someone you trust that is not maybe a co-founder, but that helps you with it, you know, getting help. I'm a big fan of like asking for help if you need it, because there's a lot of helpful people, you know, on Twitter or just out there. It's a very supportive community in general. So I think most people don't ask enough. That's my kind of gut feeling. <laughs> All right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, I did have one more question from this list, and that is about automation because there are sort of two common mantras I see. Uh, one from your side here is automate as much as you can, saves you time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the other thing I see from a lot of startup founders, at least in the early stage, is um, do things that don't scale. Uh, grow, Do some manual growth hacks or whatever you need to do to, mm. to launch and sort of get that customer engagement, reach the target audience you're looking for. So uh, are those contradictory? Are they useful for different times? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I would say, I mean, I can understand it reads here, like it's like, okay, automate everything, right? Like the way it's written in these principles, but I think everything has its place, especially in the early days, it will be a lot of manual work and also with this automation that's here right like where you start is you create a process and then you iterate on that process which will be manually right like it will be a manual process 
you will iterate on the process, you'll get it right, and then you'll automate it. It's not automation is not your first kind of, you know, line of defense or your first kind of attack plan. It's more just like, okay, what are we actually trying to solve? Like, what's the goal? How do we solve it? How do we make sure that this is like solved well? And then you automate that, right? You just automate the thing that you wrote down basically. And that, you know, goes hand in hand with what you said, right? Like you start with things that don't scale. And then once you have a system or whatever you want to call it, that works, then you can try to automate that as much as possible. But I think this also doesn't apply everywhere because I think this is more being, you know, efficient, right? Like it's automation is efficient because it saves time and it will be, has le less errors, right? Like has less margin for error because if it's automated, there's no human element to it that can go wrong, right? And that is ef efficient. But when, when I'm dealing with people, I will always think about effectiveness, right? Like it's not as important to be as effective as possible and as brief as possible if that doesn't get your point across well. Right. So I think if you're dealing with marketing or you're dealing with like customer support, I'm not a big fan of like automating the the experience, you know, as you can see with some bigger companies when they have a chatbot that you can't even get a hand on their support because they are just sending you these automated messages that are pretty much useless. Right. I think there's a point for the automation, but it should be super easy to get to a person if that's what you need. Right. But obviously a lot of people also don't want to talk to someone. They just want to get. They just want to know what they want to know. So it's good to give like predefined, like, oh, have you looked at this document? Like here's, here might be your answer, right? That's good, but it should be super easy to talk to a person because that's at the end of the day, it's most important that you make that person on the other, other side happy, right? And 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 that's, I think, uh, yeah, just I always see things as like, tools in my toolbox, right? And I need to know, okay, in which situation should I take out which tool? Sometimes it's the automation hammer and some other time it's like, you know, a wrench where I have to be more manual and pump a couple more times to get it done rather than hammering once, you know? So I think that that is the, that is the most important thing for me that it's like, know all these tools and then be very diligent with when to apply which one, right? And I think that's, I can't, I can't really get behind all of these one thing or the other, like these black and white approaches. I think that's never a good way to see anything. Right. I think for sure. And connected with that and sort of what you said about tools, um, you said in your first interview with eager that quote, I don't want to be just a, a developer. Uh, so my question there is, oh, where are you more comfortable? Are you more comfortable sort of as an indie hacker who's trying to sort of cover all bases? Or is there, have you found some like happy team size for a calm company? And, and what does that look like? How many people are there and what are the roles? Yeah, so I mean, I, to some extent, you know, enjoy a lot of things in terms of like different roles. Uh, and that's like product. I think it's development still, you know, like I don't want to just be that, but that doesn't mean that I don't like building something, right? Because that's my background and that's probably what I'm always going to be interested in, at least exploring or doing. Um, and uh, customer support, you know, I, I like talking to our customers and figuring out, helping them, you know, things like that. And for me, it was always important when I build something that someone uses it and that they think it's useful. That's kind of what drives me to build products, right? So in that, in all these areas, but for example, let's say finance or 
administration. I'm not necessarily a big fan. That's why I have a co-founder that, you know, I like to call the bean counter. So he <laughs> does all that stuff. So there's some parts where I, yeah, I, I don't really enjoy them, but otherwise I think I have a quite broad spectrum of things that I, I do enjoy, you know, from, yeah, product uh, UX. Uh, I'm not a good designer. I can try, but it won't look that good. So <laughs> development and things like that. And also marketing, right? It's, it's just, um, to, to some part, it's psychology and understanding people, uh, you know, sales. I'm not a super big fan, but I know that it's like very important in the, in the early days, you know, you were talking about things that don't scale that the first couple of customers will mainly be, you know, sales or quite sales heavy, unless you have a huge audience and it's a very good fit with your audience, what you're building. So then that becomes more of a manual thing. Um, and there again, it's like a good example of something where you shouldn't just automate something. I see all these cold email thingies that are clearly just automated. I am never going to respond to that, you know? So what we're, we did the same, right? We, we, we did a cold email campaign for, let's say tube transcripts, for example, and we did automation, but then we had a very big blurb of that was the first line or the first paragraph was like handwritten by someone tailored to the specific YouTube channel that we were targeting and the videos that they're making. And we picked out a video that we're like, yeah, this is like a really good video, blah, 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 you know, like, so there's more around like, that's obviously not the fastest because it will take time. But if I never get a, like, what, what, what is your goal? Like this conversion, right? Like people should respond to the email or should click a link or whatever. And if you just automate everything, then they're never going to do that. You know? I, I, and how did it work? Uh, it worked pretty well. I think, um, I don't remember the numbers. It's quite a while ago, but I think the YouTubers are, are, uh, quite responsive you know they had we were doing the emails that are on their channels and they seemed like super responsive compared to other you know demographics or whatever you want to call it backgrounds um i think the opening rate was around 80 80 or 90 percent and then responses were like 25 30. i mean i'm not a cold email person so obviously there's room for improvement but i think we were, you know, happy with what came back as a response. And it was definitely, uh, we got some responses where in the beginning I would write everything by hand. Right. And we got some responses where it was like, yeah, I, I, I love a good handwritten email or something. And the guy was like, yeah, I don't need your tool, but I appreciate the email and the work you put into it. And I guess I'll give a quick plug for your YouTube channel. Now go watch, uh, Stefan's YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. You mostly do uh, building public updates there. You can learn a bit about your background and your philosophy in the intro video. Uh, but every two weeks or so you do a, a building public update. So those are, those are weekly every Wednesday. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just recently started, I committed to a year because I did videos like on and off and I did videos. Like I tried more, more info heavy videos, like learn, like where you can learn something. Right. And, and scripted and tried to, you know, make it somewhat entertaining. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not very good at it, but I tried, you know, and so that takes a long time. And so I was like, I'll, if I keep doing these videos, these long videos, I'll never make enough videos to be good at making videos. Cause I'm not good at making videos. Right. It's like, if I compare myself to the kind of YouTubers that I watch, it's like, okay, what the hell is this guy doing kind of thing? So I'm, I'm doing that. And so these build and public videos are very simple for me to make. Cause I have a lot of the assets already. Like I have a lot of the screenshots. Uh, some of it will be tweets, right? Like some, a lot of it is already there and it takes me, let's say half an hour to just one off 
shot like one shot film the video with a presentation in the background where I walk through the changes and it's like super raw and unedited but I think that's kind of aligns with built in public right where it's like I'm not filtering so much and I'm just showing like what's going on behind the scenes and that's I think a more authentic way for me to make a video rather than trying to be like you know like a classic youtuber like what's going on guys you know that kind of stuff so I think you know we'll see how I like it after a year Let's get into some of your other companies though, because there are several. And I wanted to talk about Swift Brief because it seems interesting. As far as I understand, you acquired the company. You didn't build it from scratch. So I'm curious, uh, as a builder yourself, uh, wh why did you take that route and why did it make sense for, for the, the whole Calm uh, group to, to buy Swift Brief? So I think, you know, we're, we, we already been building some products like tube transcripts, et cetera. Right. And there, for example, I think we made a classic mistake of like not analyzing the market enough. Like I told you just now that we had some, some trouble, uh, finding people to buy it. And I mean, it makes money. Uh, it makes like, it makes money, but it's not enough, right. To make sense for us to keep investing in. And I think that that is, um, something that if you buy something that's existing and already has traction and already has kind of taken it from zero to one that you save like the whole kind of uncertainty of like am i building the right product is there a market you know like all these th all these things where most people will go down one way or another right like a lot of products just die because there's not enough validation and even if they build a good product then maybe there's not enough of a market the market isn't big enough etc cetera, etc cetera, right so what we wanted to do we just wanted to explore so in the beginning it was more exploratory of like okay if we were to acquire a company to kind of remove this risk from going from zero to one right that is that is the risk that you never make it to one from zero from like you're starting and you're building and you're doing something if we wanted to remove that risk, how much are, are we looking at, right? Like we were looking at like, okay, let's buy something in the range of like 50K, right? Like it needs to be somewhat validated in order to have, let's say 10, 20, the more customers, the better, the more diversified it is, the better, right? So that was something we were looking at and it was just exploration. It was just like, okay, because we don't, we didn't have that kind of money, right? Like I told you. <laughs> and so it was coincidental that at that time someone on twitter that i i've known who is a content uh used to work for a content marketing agency uh and he built this thing and he took a job because that, that going back to the struggles of a bootstrapper you can't just focus on your product because you don't have money right so he had to take a job in order to continue to work on this on the side but then that job became more and more demanding for him and he was like okay i can't do both and I want to get rid of it. Right. And so he was basically offering it on Twitter to anyone that wanted it. And I was like, okay, we're looking at this right now. Anyway, you know, at like acquiring something, this is a lower bar. Obviously he didn't have as many customers and we would have that we would have needed to call it like validated, right? Like that's the caveat because if it's more or less free, then it's obviously going to be, um, no customers because otherwise he could just sell it and make more money with it basically. Right. So, but it was a, a, an interesting product and it was very early too, because we're using like GPT, you know, like chat GPT now, and I'm converting it to GPT four just because I recently got access to it, but it, it had been using that already for a long time. Like he's has, had been building it for six, six months, eight months, something like that. 
because he's not a developer himself. He did it himself. He learned coding and then he started building it himself, right? Uh, so it took a bit longer, but he had he, he was very early to that kind of GPT thing. And when I when we took it over, it was GPT was getting more and more like popular, right? And like people were starting to pay attention to it. And so we were just like, this just seems like a good opportunity, right? And we're just gonna commit to use this as a kind of playground or a sandbox for trying this out. Like, how does it actually work if we buy something, you know, kind of like a low um not low effort, but like a low key kind of just why not, you know, and like, why not try it out? And I think um, we stuck to the kind of process that we have usually by partnering with, you know, someone that is um, an authority in the space. And I was reaching out to people on Twitter. I was just posting on Twitter and I was like, okay, who, who could use a tool like this? And then one guy, uh, Flavio, like a couple people reached out and Flavio, who's now our like marketing partner for this. And he is basically the target customer because he, he, he owns a content agency, right? So he writes, this is about outlines and content briefs. He makes two to 300 of them per month, you know, which is like the value metric of this tool is basically that you save a lot of time putting together an outline. And so the more that's the value and the more briefs you have per month, right? The more time you're going to save, because if you save 25 per brief, 25 minutes, up to 55 minutes, depending on how, how diligent you are with your own process. Like some people need half an hour. Others have like a very, um, elaborate process. They need like one hour, uh, and then it takes like two minutes with our tool and then some editing, right? So it's two minutes automated, and then you have to edit some things here and there. Um, and, um, saves you a lot of time. Right. And so the more you have per month, the more value valuable it's going to be for you because the more time it's going to save you so we're mainly going right now going after agencies just because they have tend to have the most volume because everyone that needs briefs that works with with someone they will go to an agency we mainly bought it to try it out how, how it is because that's our long-term kind of vision but we wanted to try it out but also to build up already start building up like relationships of partners, right? Like Parallax, for example, of like, okay, we know that if we want to be somewhere where we would be holding and we have multiple companies, then obviously we can't do everything ourselves because other, otherwise, you know, and I think you asked about that earlier, like a perfect team size. And I didn't answer that because I was yeah. rambling too much. <laughs> I think it's around like that, like, is it the pizza one pizza rule or two pizza two, rule two I think pizzas i think yeah two pizza rule right so it is like 10 to 12 people or something i would say that is like my ideal world right of like a size of let's say at least within the holding what that team is and then have like partners or other people that are not kind of part of the core team but that we use on demand for different tasks if we need to run like performance ads we have a partner if we need more you know, product execution, like what Parallax does, like we have a partner for that and we can just onboard a developer really quickly and get, you know, get it out there and things like that. So that is kind of how, how, how I see it as like the, that's the kind of size that I'm comfortable with, because that's also kind of team size that we usually had with the companies that I worked in before. And I think past that you get, you start having like needing more management layers and things like that. And I think that slows everything down. So that's kind of like big enough to be like to be fast and have like enough capacity to get th like meaningful things done but small enough not to end up with 
loads of overhead in communication and everything, you know. So, and that's our sandbox where we just try this out and we build up these relationships and we, you know, like we're working on cool stuff with other people. And I think it's mm -hmm. so far, it's been really, really fun and rewarding experience for us. And uh, okay. yeah, we saved, we saved the time of like building it from zero, right? Which was right. like I said, six months or something or eight months or something. Okay. And if there are any other sort of founders or groups out there who are considering an acquisition like this, I guess, uh, how long did it, the whole process take? And are there any sort of pitfalls to look out for? Yeah. I mean, usually in this price range, this was like a custom deal just because the founder that built it, he didn't want to list it on MicroQuire or something like that because there it's all like templates, right? Like you have an asset purchase agreement, you have like an LIA template. There, I think it's very much straightforward. And in the range that we're talking, um, it's like, just go through, uh, I would say go through a marketplace and there it should be quite straightforward. Like you hear stories about people selling their stuff in two weeks or less, something like that. And if you go through something like Acquire, uh, it's not MicroQuire anymore, I guess, uh, yeah. they, they have a pretty streamlined process. Um, it's just, it's, uh, you have to filter. I've heard like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff on there and you need to be really sure that you're not buying something that won't last kind of thing. So it is some filtering is required. And I think that is also why if you look at bigger, um, like micro PEs, um, I think a lot of deals will also be custom there. And what people usually do is they try to get as close to the source as possible, right? Where it's like, okay, let's look at fork, fork equity, for example, is a, is a bigger one. And they have like a CTA on their website where it's like, okay, like sell to us, sell me your right. startup, basically, right? right? So they want to get as close to the founder as possible or to the intermediary that's like helping like a broker or something. But again, like they, those are usually bigger ticket sizes, right? It depends on yeah. what kind of acquisition you're looking, I think. Yeah. All right. So sticking with the theme of, of buying and selling businesses, uh, on ComOS, you said that the goal is sellability for your, your products or your startups. So uh, I'm curious what kind of benchmarks you're looking for. When do you decide or to figure out that it's a good time to sell versus continue growing versus uh, some other option, I guess? What do you look mm -hmm. at? Honestly, I don't know if we have a good benchmark yet because I think we're not at the point where we need to be looking at that kind of stuff with <laughs> different problems. But I think one thing for sure for us is like how much we enjoy like solving the problems that are currently there, right? Like if it gets to a certain scale and for example, we need to, to continue growing, we need to grow the team significantly or we need to do something that's out of our comfort zone. I think then that becomes a thing where we have two options to either like hire more people or maybe we can look for a strategic acquisition partner that already brings those areas of expertise right or helps us like take it to the next level i think that is more of a, a gut feeling rather than really like a benchmark but i'm i think you're you're right like we should have a better sense of what we're doing there because i don't think we have it to be honest, <laughs> but I Fair think, enough. you know, that is, that is a big one for me at least, because I'm like, if I don't want to work on something, I just think it's not never going to reach its full potential. Right. And I think right now it makes a lot of sense because it's a very 
the process that we're in right now is what I'm familiar with and what we're, you know, some have expertise in, but if we reach a certain scale where that doesn't, is not the case anymore, I think then, um, it makes sense to, to, to sell, you know, um, other than that, I think the question is also like what the market is looking at the, at the stage, because it's going to be like, you know, and I hear a lot of times people are overestimating like the amount of money that they can make. Right. So it's basically like people think they can sell their company for much more, but if you put it out there and you get like hit by the market reality, it's actually not that huge depending on where you live. For example, I think, um, Damon, also a guy on Twitter, he has a testimonial TO, I think, or something. So he was talking about this, that he, I think he lives in San Francisco and he could have sold the company for like half a year of rent or something in San Francisco, right? <laughs> Versus like the company cash flow paying his rent or, how, or like three quarters of it or something, right? Where it's like, okay, does that make sense? I don't think so, right? Like I've put all this like work into this so i might as well just keep it around and see if i can hire a sort of operator to sell it uh, and I, I had another conversation on twitter the other day where someone was like no selling doesn't make financial sense for me i want to keep the cash flow and i want to just work on something else because I've, i'm kind of burned out on this specific project and i want to work on something else so i will just hire an operator from the cash flow i can afford an operator and then i can remove myself from operations, uh, more or less, and have them run it and check in with them once in a while, right? Uh, like you're never going to be fully removed. And that's also what I said. It's like, yeah, that's not, that makes sense if that's what you want, but you're never going to, you know, fully remove yourself from the company as in like, you're completely out of touch with it. And you're also never going to get rid of the risk of it, like going down. Right. So it is still risky to own a business rather than having the cash in your account or investing it into ETFs or something with less risk just because the market is more volatile, right? So I think that is also something and I think that's, for example, why um, a lot of people sell is to remove some of that risk and, you know, cash in on their, on their investment, because that's basically what it is, right? Like you invest your, your time and your effort into something that is, has a certain dollar amount. It's just, I see it as a sort of asset class almost, right? Where it's like, okay, right. this is asset and obviously I want to, I can either keep holding it like a stock or I can just get rid of it. Right. And then it's has kind of the same characteristics in terms of like, is now a good time to sell, you know, how much return am I getting? Should I be selling? You know, like those kind of questions, I think you can ask them to yourself and then also just like, do I still want to do it? And because it's much more involved than owning a stock, you know, like whatever, but for, it's like, it's more, it's more work, right? So yeah, it, yeah. it's more involved. And that's also why it gives you a bigger return if you do it well. Um, but I, th those kind of questions, I think you can ask yourself and that's kind of something you can consider. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, good advice for people looking to follow the same route. All right. Uh, the next business I wanted to ask you about is called Bridesmaid. I guess it's one of the newer ones that you've yeah. been working on. And on that company, it appears that you partnered with a, a co-founder or, or, or the idea originator. Explain the whole relationship to me because it, it seems a little bit of opaque and sort of how do you decide when to work with co-founders like this situation? And yeah. how do you decide when to like run things in-house? So this project in particular is an old friend of mine. 
that reached out to me. So it is a very like personal relationship. Um, I worked with him on a, a, a dating app that was called Hater back in the day. He was like our marketer. And he, he, he just reached out to me and I was like, look, my, my wife, so it's his wife is the person we're actually partnering with. But he was saying like, my wife writes these speeches for people, right? She's already doing it as a service business, right? Or it's part of her kind of portfolio of services and products that she has. Um, and they're quite expensive because I think they're like $500 or something. So it's like more a premium service, right? Um, and so she was like, yeah, it's, he was like, yeah, it's not accessible. Right. Cause it's so expensive, but there's probably more people that could use help with writing a good speech because most people from her experience with working with people that need help, they just don't know how to write a speech. And they also, another friction point is they don't know how to hold a speech, right? Like giving a speech. And so. Uh, could I just I, stop you there? Uh, yeah. We're talking specifically about bridesmaid toasts yeah. at a wedding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not, so, not any type of speech. No, right? no, no. Sorry, sorry. If I, I thought <laughs> yeah. the context was clear, but if yeah, speaking yeah. around the video, maybe it was a bit, a bit confusing. Yeah, it, so she does like her her business or her website is called Bridesmaid for Hire. That's mm -hmm. her brand, right? Like that's her her domain and her brand, and she has gathered a lot of. She calls herself like a bridesmaid on steroids. That's what she calls herself, and she's got gathered like a lot of media attention through that, and she's also a writer herself. Uh, for a bigger like publication and she's appeared in like all these us big publications so a lot of the angle that we're taking with her is also going to be pr because that's her kind of area of expertise and that, where she's good at and where she's likely to get us traction for the tool right so that's a big part of the kind of strategy of the, the marketing or the distribution um but for for she offers this as a part of her brand that she writes a bridesmaid speech for you um together with you, obviously. And we're basically just, we're like, yeah, I mean, that sounds fine. And it sounds some, like something that GPT is like really good for, right? Like that's basically one of the prime like use cases. And with these, like we were exploring the area of like building something around GPT, um, but we didn't want to build some utility that doesn't have any, any mode, right? Where it's like, okay, I mean, this thing also is not going to really have any modes, right? But it's like we already have the distribution there and we don't have to compete with everyone else around building like a GPT wrapper or search PDFs or, you know, all these things where there's yeah. like 20 of the same. And then it's all like, okay, how are you going to be better in distribution than someone else? Like, what is the innovation there? So it's, it's just going to be, you know, like... Two, two years from now, probably one of them was going to still be there or maybe the big players, right? Like, for example, we're looking at some building something like for Notion documents just to feed everything from your Notion into the GPT wrapper and then it, you answer the questions like your classic kind of what everyone is doing, right? So, and I was like, okay, I was looking a bit at the market and I see this, for example, company Slight, which is like a Notion competitor and they already built that into the tool. So yeah. these like, utility use cases that are quite broad, they will probably be picked off by the companies that already have those, the data in the tool, right? Where it's like, it's already in Notion, so Notion is just gonna do it, or it's already in this other tool, so they're gonna do it. So we were looking at more like long tail use cases, and we kind of didn't go too far down the rabbit hole, but then again, it was like this coincidental thing where like this guy comes around the corner, he's like, my wife does this. Do you want to do that? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, so, and it's also not a very hard thing to build. And that's why it doesn't have any moat because it's like, 
yeah, we have, I mean, what we have in terms of mode, if you want to call that, I wouldn't call that is like, we have her process and we have her examples and she's a writer and she can estimate like if it's a good speech or not and what questions to ask and things like that. Right. Like that we have, but yeah. other than that, it's just, it's just the brand and it's just the, the distribution, you know, technology wise, this is not something people can just build themselves. Right. So that is something where I was like, okay, this all makes sense. And you know, we're, we also don't really see this specific product as like a long-term thing. Like it's not a long-term bet. It's just going to be to, you know, get some press, maybe get that onto the other products and also to, you know, make some money, some cash flow. But we're not expecting this to be around for, let's say, 10 years, right? We're just yeah. like Swift Brief and this other company thingy, like the other project that we have, those are more like long-term bets that have also much bigger potential, right? from a market size perspective, but also to just stick around longer. Um, and so it's just like, okay, let's, let's just do it. It's the, the timing is, is good now too, right? Like it's not as good anymore from like a GPT perspective. And that's also why you're it's like kind of old news, right? So we're not going to get press and we're aware of that for like a text field thing where it's like, oh, question answer right that is right. like done already too especially in this like bridesmaid space there's more companies in that space than you would think like i had no idea about this <laughs> stuff but there's like huge like wedding planning agencies and tools right. software you know and like in this whole space it is quite quite a big uh, market uh, which i didn't know obviously but that that has been done and the output is very generic right like right. because most people they when they put in the input they don't take enough time to do it they're just like when did you meet um you know the bright i'm being asked as the bridesmaid like when i met the bright and then people are like last week or like two years ago you know that's not an answer where <laughs> you can write a good speech with because it's lacking context right because it's like okay but what does that mean two years ago okay so you know each other two years and then gpt will write a very generic speech because it's lacking context right, right. so we're building uh something to differentiate ourselves where it's like it's a chatbot and the chatbot keeps asking questions until it determines it has enough information to make a good speech and it's not going to be generic right and then we have certain structure that we keep doing things like that where that it hasn't been done in these existing ones because it's just people trying to grab some cash basically right from like oh gpt you can write speeches what are like areas right. where can, uh, write a speech so i think that and then we have some some other things planned that are you know taking that from a utility like the first version the kind of first version we're going to launch and going to get traffic from her existing like organic traffic and her existing newsletter subscribers and podcasts like she has a lot of different channels that we can tap mm -hmm. into to drive some traffic and make improve the product and that it will be a utility where it's like it's a really um useful thing to write a speech and then we'll build some some stuff on top of that where we're moving away from utility a bit right like you can still use the utility but we'll add some stuff that makes it more likely to get press attention because it's just more funny or shocking or you know like something like that where it's like that it has more potential to still get people to get up but then what i also meant with the timing aspect is like the, the kind of wedding season is coming up and I think right. it's like or it is already and I think like August is kind of peak right so we're trying to get it done in time to take like ride that wave because otherwise it's just going to be next year and that's right. why we we're like okay if we want to do it then we need to do it like 
now now or never kind of thing, right? Because next year, GPT is going to be even less you know, interesting because there's right. going to be something else that's more interesting, right? So, Well, very cool. And uh, it's interesting that you, coincidental that you get to work with friends and make stuff like that. I guess um, real quick, could you describe the, the team that you're working with within like sort of the umbrella of Calm OS? I understand that you've been friends with these guys for a long time. Uh, do you all work together in the office sometimes? Do you all work from different parts of the world? What's it look like? So we are all like, we're four people in the kind of core team, right? Um, I'm the only one that's actually full-time and the other guys have a normal job and they keep like, you know, just shipping in where they can uh, on a like part-time basis. That's mm -hmm. again, like with the bootstrapping, you know, <laughs> the downsides of bootstrapping. But we have known each other, two of the guys I've known for 12 years and one guy I've known for also 10, right? So a very, very long time. Um, and the guys that I've known a bit longer, they branched off when we left school and they, one guy is a machine learning such data scientist and the other guy is the bean counter <laughs> that I already talked about. So he's like a restructuring and valuation consultant uh, in like a big, you know, uh, consulting company. And so they have very different backgrounds. And one other guy I studied with, so he's more of a developer guy because that's, you know, my kind of background. That's why I've known him like a bit less long because we started together. Um, and so we were combining these expertises, right? Which is pretty good in terms of like, okay, for example, when we buy a company, the restructure, restructuring is a big thing where it's about, all about optimization, right? So we have diff these different backgrounds that we can utilize to um, make the best out of both scenarios because a lot of people, and then again, becomes this like spectrum conversation or like I'm an indie hacker and I only do indie things. And then this other person is like, I'm a consultant. I only do corporate things, you know, because that's what I know and where you can pick the best from both worlds and kind of meet in the middle where it makes sense, right? Like have more structure than an indie hacker, because we know that it's important that, you know, for example, our invoicing is like spotless because in Germany, you can get audited even as a tiny company. And we're like, right. nah, I'm not going to deal with that. But if I was an indie hacker, like if I was my by myself, I would not care until it's too late, basically. You know, <laughs> so that is kind of what is really good about the team that we have these different backgrounds and, and kind of branched out. And then we came back together, you know, like this this diamond. Uh, but those other guys, they are all, uh, to answer your, your question specifically, they are all in Berlin, where I'm from, right? So that is... Um, Kind of where we went to school together um and I, i'm right now i'm in leiden which is very close to amsterdam in the netherlands uh and i lived a bit in stockholm before this in sweden so we, we mostly work remote and we also work very much async so yeah. a lot of our communication is either documents or it is uh looms like screen recordings or you know things that are written down or tickets um because we want to protect the kind of deep work or the time that those guys have because they only have certain hours a week, right? I I prepare everything for them to then be as efficient as possible with their limited amount of time that they have, right? And that has also cool. proved very useful for dealing with developers and all kinds of people that don't like calls. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, that's like a workflow that they really like because they don't just yeah. don't like calls. And it's just to protect protect like your time and let you do things on in your own pace, right? Rather than forcing you to jump on a call every half hour and 
forcing that down your throat because it's a fu fundamentally different way of working between like a developer and like, you know, like a manager, you know, this whole like maker versus manager schedule. So that has been, that has proven like pretty, really good as well. now with like scaling the team, you know, with Parallax and, 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 and all that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with that, how that's going, but obviously the goal will be for everyone to be on full time of the core team by the cash flow of the products uh, and like another avenue we're exploring now is to build up some sort of agency sit you know thing on the side where that's easier to make cash but it's not as long lasting as building a product but it had right. it, it has been uh, an avenue that has opened up again in collaboration with parallel right where we can funnel do some sales funnel type stuff and then help kind of manage that and then help work again together with parallel on it for example right because that's something that will help alleviate the, ca the cash flow problems where it's like every time we do freelance for three months because we don't have cash. Right. So that's right. something we're starting to ramp up now. Um, and I think we're, we're, we're on a, on a good way to get, to, to get somewhere there. I think. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Uh, let's wrap up with a few quick questions about building public and then, uh, wrap up cause it's already been an hour. I want to respect your time as well. So, uh, 24, 7,000 plus tweets and nine years later, uh, what have you learned about either being a founder or life in general on Twitter? A lot. I'm thinking what the main, most important thing is. I think so with Twitter specifically, before Twitter, and I was signed up on Twitter a long time, right? uh, for years and years. And I was just like everyone else just in the background. I was never tweeting anything. I was just like consuming. Right. Yeah. I think that we're, my comfort zone was not to put things out there, right? Like build in public. That was new for me. My first kind of company that I found when I was 20 years old, we built in private for two years and then launched. And then nobody cared at all about what we built because we were just like tech people building something that didn't have a market, you know, things like that. And so even then, like with the startups that I've been involved in, I wasn't necessarily a lot in the kind of public side of things. Right. So I was more in the background, I was building it together with the team. And so this was all new for me, but I think it's also so important to just put things out there, you know, and not hold anything back just for you and your own sanity and to get like advice and get people to, you know, basically tell you the truth that it's not about like necessarily what you're building, but like how, how, how validated it is what you're building. That's more important than what you're building, right? That you're building the right, right thing, like thing and not the right thing is usually not what you think it is, right? It's what the market thinks it thinks it is. That's the right thing to build. And I think that Twitter can help with that a lot, but also it can be your kind of accountability partner. And that's what I mainly use it for, where it's like, like I said, this thing where I said, I will commit to a year of making videos, I put, put that on Twitter because then it's out there. And then, you know, I don't think people care, you know, I don't think they care if I do it for a year or not, but <laughs> I know that it's out there and I know that maybe 1% cares and they will hold me accountable. Right. Like I do that in, in a private setting. Like I do that with my, my friends or my, or co like, you know, co-founders, we do that in that setting, but I also do it on Twitter. It's just an extension of that where it's like on a private scale, they're more likely to actually be honest with me, I would say, right? Like my, yeah. my friends and call out my shit, but it's still very helpful to put it in public and then 
motivate yourself to keep up to that standard because you have something to maintain, right? Like a reputation or whatever you want to call it. I don't really have a reputation, but. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's, I guess, connected with that, uh, what are your goals, I guess, for building in public on Twitter and have they changed over time? Is it to get more followers? You mentioned validation for ideas. Is it to find a community of possible partners? Is it all of those things? I would say it's all of it. Like, especially until now, it has been super, super helpful in getting partners like Parallel, right? Like that was through Twitter. Um, we have advisors that came through Twitter for the holding uh, that I have monthly calls with and things like that, right? So that is all relationships. Um, it's obviously also motivating, but I think a long, long-term bet is that if we are becoming a holding or a PE or whatever, right, over the long run, then it is good to have good standing within that community to get closer to the deals, right? Or get founders to work with you on, on the holding level companies, right? Where it's like, okay, you, we partner up and we do it together, you know? And I think that I'm already kind of paving the way. It's like a very long-term thing, right? But I'm also in my mind kind of paving the way towards that. And I'm trying to, you know, establish myself as an authority or just like show the work that I do because I think that makes more sense than talking about like just saying like oh I'm gonna be millionaire <laughs> and I don't have a plan to get there right I'm like okay here's the, the stuff that I'm doing if you think it's interesting you will come to me and you'll be like yeah this is really cool I want to work on it with you or I have this other thing that I want to work on right I think that is a bit of a more long-term shot but I think it's um just the earlier start the better right all right uh i guess i have a question about ship posting so <laughs> what how do you break down the percentage of ship posting versus quote adding value i think it's more heavy on the ship posting to be honest but it's mainly because every like when i tweet myself i think that i'm trying to to have value with a little bit of a joke in between right like i'll sometimes have a tweet that is talking about something serious, but I'm trying to like make fun of it a bit at the end or something. Like I'm trying to be still myself because I've always been the kind of class clown, you know, that every teacher hates. Like that's just how I've always been. So I think that I'm that's authentic for me. I don't know if that's necessarily good, right? Like some people probably think it's not good and like like being perceived as like serious and like i was talk, like joking about this yesterday where i was like i changed my profile picture because i'm serious businessman doing serious business or something you know so i i am aware of that but i think it's very authentic for me and i think i'm not taking it too far and i'm still trying to be like somewhat helpful especially in the videos that i'm making i'm going into a lot of detail about like why are we doing certain things like why for example for the one project do we have already have like a like letter of intents for this thing signed because it's part of validation right so there is i think if you listen closely there's value to be found at least i hope so but in the comments like if someone writes something and then i respond to it then it's mainly just like bullshit, to be honest right. <laughs> all right i do have one last question then uh since this week or last week uh there's cool new social network launch that looks very much like Twitter. Uh, but you decided to join LinkedIn. Uh, can you tell us why that was? And 
Uh, what are you hoping to find on LinkedIn that you don't find on Twitter? So I have always been on LinkedIn, same thing, but never post anything because LinkedIn, what I think of when I think of LinkedIn is like these kind of cringe posts that it's mainly like this should be on Facebook, but it's on LinkedIn, but now it's like has a business aspect to it, right? That's what I always thought of LinkedIn. But I do have, I think, around a thousand connections or something. So it is like I've just been building that up on the side, right? Not necessarily because uh, I focused on it. It's just happened naturally. Uh, and so I was just like, why not use it if I already have it? And just, you know, I'm trying to keep the shit posting on Twitter and I'm trying to keep like the, the building public updates, for example, like the more value that I see that I will cross post. And I'm not really driving a different strategy for LinkedIn than in them for Twitter in terms of like that stuff, it's made like copy paste and just see if anything, like if anything, if anyone um, will resonate with it. And I do have some contacts there that are not on Twitter just because it's not their kind of where they hang out. Right. Uh, so I've seen that in the, in the video for the latest build and public update, I've seen, I think 20 or 25 new viewers. And a couple of them subscribed, uh, three, four of them, right? It's not huge, but those are all people that haven't seen the video because they're not on Twitter. So I think it, it, it makes sense to just repurpose it or cross post because it's not a lot of effort and try it out. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just an experiment, right? Like I used to, I, I try to just see things as experiments and if it doesn't work, then it just doesn't work. And, uh, I haven't joined threads yet because I'm too lazy to be honest. And also I'm too, I'm too lazy to sign up, um, or change my app store. Cause I don't think it's available in the app store that I'm in or something. I was just like, ah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I like to see if these things, because right now it's in a stage where it's still very much shiny object syndrome, like people jumping on the new thing. And I, you know, same was with blue, was it blue sky or something? I don't know yeah. if that's still a thing, you know, or like clubhouse or something. I think there's something to be gained if you're very one of the first ones, if it's a new content format, right? Like with clubhouse, I think a lot of people were quite um, successful uh, in the beginning because it's a new format that now is also on Twitter, right? Like with spaces right. or whatever. So I think that I probably should have tried out to see how, how it goes, but with like threads, I think it's exactly Twitter, right? So it is like, okay, what is the unique thing that this has? And if it's just, I have the same people that I have on Twitter, but on this other app, then it just becomes a chore to maintain both, you know? And I think if it's still around and let's say three to six months and there is some, some unique angle that I'm not seeing, or Twitter has finally gone to shit completely because of what's going on in the background, then I'll, I'll probably switch, you know, but I'm not, I don't have enough time and this is not important enough in terms of like, you know, where the actual work gets done is in the background and like building right. these companies. And it, this is more like where I have fun and I'm like, cool. If something falls off at the bottom of the funnel, uh, that's cool. You know, or like if I get new partnerships or if I build cool relationships, you know, that's cool. But I think, um, it's more of a nice to have rather than keeping the company afloat. That is more the kind of meat and potatoes kind of thing that I'm focusing on. So sure. I just don't really, I don't know, call me a, on the like adoption curve that I'm like all the way in the back, like the laggard, right. whatever. <laughs> right. 
For me, I guess uh, I'm a bit of a split personality with uh, my, my social media usage. So Twitter, it's mostly startups and, and this podcast and things like that, building public, trying to get into that community. On Instagram, it's all bikes and running and food and completely different following and followers that on the two different platforms. So uh, Threads is interesting in that way but the feed is atrocious at the moment i don't understand their algorithm at all uh anyway we don't have to get into that too much uh i guess if founders are interested in learning more about the calm approach to company building they should go to calm os and they will find everything one they want to learn there right that sounds like a good idea <laughs> all right <laughs> I'll leave links to the show or in the show notes for all these projects and websites, and they'll probably find you on YouTube as well. So thank you, Stefan, for your time. It's been an enlightening conversation. I look forward to a long future of a partnership with you and, and Parallect and a lot of cool products to come. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, John. I hope the rambling was somewhat contained, but <laughs> yeah, <so> yeah. <laughs> <Probably> was okay. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Thanks. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye bye.